Well, I suppose there's many a preacher this morning that's compelled to speak or to follow up the news this week <laughs> of the miners being rescued. And, and, and I don't think we can go by without just reflecting on that for a moment or two, because in a sense there are issues in that. And, uh, and I think it would be good to reflect on that. It's, it's good to join another nation of the world in thanking God in their way, in their place. We, we can't measure their thanksgiving. We can't measure what they say, but certainly it's been made public. There is an appreciation to God for what he's done. I mean, for example, there's, there's, there's lots of little phrases that have floated out of the news reports that preachers would use in what we call gospel messages. They've come out from darkness into light, for example. That's what the reporter said. Come from darkness to light. And that's just a, a practical thing, isn't it? They were down in darkness and yet they came out into life. And that's a sort of a biblical phrase too, that when we become believers, we've actually been translated from the power of darkness into the kingdom of his son, into the kingdom of light, where God exists, where true understanding is. Another phrase that's floated out, it was their hell. To them, it was an awful, bad experience. But then if we look at Iraq and if we look at the situation there, we also see another awful situation which we could say, that's their hell. <laughs> or the people could reflect on their, their experience and say, that's our hell. Well, that was our hell. And it's interesting to know that the Bible talks about hell. Jesus mentioned it as a place to be. What is hell? What is the real hell? It's a place without Jesus. That's for sure. And I think that's very significant. We often read about hell as being like a lake of fire. But as I look at that more and more, I, I, that's just a reflection on what it really is. In a sense, it, the lake of fire is reserved for the devil and his angels. And that comes into what we're looking at in Hebrews this morning. You know, for the devil and his angels. That is a place for him. Cast into outer darkness. And the true preacher of the Bible can never pass what he says without mentioning the place that what Jesus has done has delivered us from that, it can deliver us from that experience of hell. A place without Jesus. That means it's a place without love, it's a place without mercy, and it's a place without goodness. And it's a place, a very negative place. But it's also a place of experience, emotional experience, of regret. And I think lake of fire sort of terms the spiritual and emotional experience of that place. And if we look at those miners down there, their experience was bad. It was awful. And none of us would want to be in that situation. But from the Bible's perspective and the truth perspective, there is a real hell. That's why Jesus died. That's why he suffered, to deliver us from that. And we just never get that. In our story this morning, we're looking God's perspective for this earth and the evil that's in it. It was their hell. That is true. It was amazing how once the tunnel had been drilled down to where the miners were, a man went down that tunnel first to see what it was like and to see if it worked. We remember that Jesus came from heaven to this earth. 
Someone refers to the coming of Jesus to this world as Jesus walking down the stairway of heaven to this earth when he first came. It is more than that. But Jesus came to this earth to rescue us. To rescue us. And so the rescue attempt was made. The hole was drilled and the rescue was made possible that everyone should come out of that place down in the mine. So it's good for us to reflect on that story because it brings God's perspective, God's perspective of truth from the Bible into very real-life situations. And we should never forget that. But when Jesus came, he came to rescue us and save us from death and hell and to bring us salvation. He brought, gave us the gift of life. And in a sense, those men have said our life has been given back to us. Our lives have been given back to us. So, Father, we just want to thank you, along with other people in the world this morning, that this has spoken to us in a way of its own importance, Lord, of its own relevance. And we thank you, Father, that uh, this morning we would just celebrate your goodness in allowing this to be a successful operation and bringing all those lives out from that pit. Thank you too, Father. It has spiritual implications too because it reminds us how important life is and it reminds us how important the decisions we make in this life need to be made while we're alive. And so, Father, we come to you this morning and we, we want to give you our thanks and our praise and offer the glory to you in Jesus' name. Your Bible, perhaps you'd like to turn to our passage this morning in Hebrews. We're, we're still in this series of real faith and um, some might be pleased to remember what Steve said last week that it soon be coming to an end. <laughs> you know, and... Um, if you found it boring, well, that's up to you, I think. I know we're not the best orators, all of us, but I think we would admit that. But you know, we're, talk, we're presenting Bible truth as it is. We're bringing to you the Word of God. And I've found in my experience that what I found boring once upon a time was made unboring. If you like, I don't know if that's a word, is it unboring? when I first committed myself to finding out what the Bible was really about. We, as Christians, we say how important it is to read our Bibles, and that is true, but we just read them sometimes and say, well, God, I've got a problem today. How are you going to find my problem? But as for Timothy, Paul reminded him, he said, as from a child, you've known the Holy Scriptures. Now, there's a difference between knowing the Holy Scriptures and reading our Bibles. And I think if you want to make a difference to Sunday mornings, to yourself, you need to know the Scriptures, not just read your Bibles. That's when the difference comes very often. I'm not saying always, but if you really want to know what God's about, if you're really interested in being a Christian, if you're really interested in being a member of the church, you have all the resource in the world to find out what God is saying in his word. And unless we have an interest in doing that, when our interest begins, then God's revealing begins. He reveals to us what's in the heart of his word. If we just come to it, I must do my bit today, read my Bible, because, Father, I have this problem and that problem, and it meets my need just for today. There's more than that. 
It's knowing the scriptures as soon as God gives us the opportunity to do that. We have time to watch our programs and not to miss EastEnders and things like that and whatever other program we like to follow and yet we, have time, we say we haven't got time to read our Bibles and to study it. It says in here are the issues of life. How interested are you in the Bible? What could say how interested are you in God or Jesus? As from a child, you have known the Holy Scriptures. I think that's quite important. So there's a difference there. And when we come to these stories of the Old Testament, some people say, oh, I only like a New Testament because I can't understand the Old Testament. But really, the New Testament is all about the Old Testament, and the Old Testament is all about the New Testament. And it's actually getting the key there. God revealing the key to us so that we might understand. The things in this life we... We always do the things we want to do. We've got time to do this, time to do our courses, time to do our hobbies, time to do our pastimes, and time to do everything. And you say, I don't understand it. Or maybe you haven't put time to understand it. We have all the resource in the world. If you, you've only got to click on the internet. And the biblical opportunities that are on there, simply the sermons, understanding the word of God. And I just want to take that to challenge everyone, let's get into our Bibles that we might know the Holy Scriptures, not just read our Bibles. Yes, we will find help, we'll find guidance, but there's far more to it than that. And so when it comes to these stories in the Old Testament, which we're sort of looking at through Hebrews, which is in the New Testament, talking about real faith, then we begin to, maybe we'll begin to understand what the story's about. I mean, if you find it a little bit difficult this morning, don't always blame it on the preacher. I'm not the best speaker. Any of mine, you know that, and I know that. And I have difficulty explaining things sometimes. But I'm here, and that's, that's up to you. Uh, you can get me out if you like. But sometimes it's not always down to the preacher. It's not always down to the preacher. It's down to how much you're interested in what God has to say. So let's look, look at Hebrews and look what little verse I've got this morning. Hebrews 11. And it's about verse 32. Most of you are there. So I'll get there as well, shall I? <clears throat> Hebrews 11, verse 32. And what more shall I say? I do not have time to tell about Gideon. Well, Steve had time to tell about Gideon last week, so we learned a fair good bit last week, and that was good. Time to tell about Gideon, Barak, that's what we're looking at this morning, and then the Samson and Jephthah, David, Samuel and the prophets. Short verse, what does the writer to the Hebrews say in the context that those Christians need to be challenged back to a place of commitment, which is what I've already done this morning. Challenge us back to a place of commitment to the Scriptures, to the, what the Bible says. And as the writer to Hebrews is trying to challenge me, he's saying, and what more shall I say? I do not have time to tell. What is he really saying behind that? What is he really saying to 
how much more evidence do you actually need? And I'm, he's, he's saying, yeah, I need to mention these guys, but how much evidence about real faith do you really want from me? What, what, proof, what more proof do you need? And we could say that about the world we live in. We could say that about people who, who don't believe. We could say it about ourselves. How much proof do we need about our commitment to God? We don't have to look at other Christians, people like George Muller, about their real faith. People of our lifetime, almost our generation. People like Billy Graham, John Wimber, and people who have proved areas of faith. So what's Paul doing? He's, he's prodding them. He said, come on, now. I don't have time to tell about these. I've given you enough evidence to prod you, to stir you into action. I've given you enough proof to stir you into action. And I do think we need stirring into action. That's where he goes into chapter 12. Therefore, these guys, these cloud of witnesses... And you're surrounded by such a cloud of witnesses. He says, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that entangles us. And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus. So from those cloud of witnesses who would ultimately Turn our eyes to Jesus. He's saying, you've got all the evidence you need, all the proof you need. I just want to stir you back into action, to stir you up to be the people of God that you're really meant to be. And I think we need to be stirred, don't we? Some of the things I'm going to say this morning are not going to be actually easy to take as we look at Barak and the story that we're going to read from. And so I hope that you will take that. Being a Christian, you can't be a pacifist. That's almost the story of Barak. We're going to read the story in a minute. You can't be a pacifist. What, what do we really mean by that? Here's some of the things I'm going to talk about. I'm going to talk about understanding the killing fields of heaven. You say, that's a strong point, that's a strong statement. But we find this because people are saying, how can a God of love be in a God who causes people to be slaughtered, mass slaughtered? And it's not an easy issue. It's actually an embarrassing issue if you want to talk about a God of love how that God caused his own people, the Israelites, to go out and slaughter people and how in turn the Israelites themselves were slaughtered as a result of disobedience to God. How are these difficult things explained? How are these difficult things talked about? I don't know. Let's read the story of Barak. Judges chapter 4.
Judges chapter 4 and verse 1. After Ehud died, the Israelites once again did evil in the eyes of the Lord, so the Lord sold them into the hands of Jabin, a king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. The commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in Harasheth, Hagion, because he had 900 chariots and had cruelly oppressed the Israelites for 20 years. They cried to the Lord for help. Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, was leading Israel at that time. She held court under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. And the Israelites came to her to have their disputes decided. She sent for Barak, son of Abinoam, that's the man we're looking at this morning, from Kedesh in Naphtali, and said to him, The Lord... The God of Israel commands you, go take with you 10,000 men of Naphtali and Zebulun and lead the way to Mount Tabor. I will lure Caesarea, the commander of Jabin's army, with his chariots and his troops to the Kishon River and give him into your hands. Barak said to her, if you go with me, I will go. But if you don't go with me, I won't go. Very well, Deborah said, I will go with you. But because of the way you're going about this, the honour will not be yours, for the Lord will hand Sisera over to a woman. So Deborah went with Barak to Kedesh, where he summoned Zebulun and Naphtali. 10,000 men followed him, and Deborah also went with him. Now Heber the Kenite had left the other Kenites, the descendants of Hobab, Moses' brother-in-law, and pitched his tent by the great tree in Zainanim near Kadesh. When they told Sisera that Barak, son of Abinoam, had gone up to Mount Tabor, Sisera gathered together his 900 iron chariots and all the men with him from Harasheth Hagayim to the Kishon River. Then Deborah said to Barak, go. This is the day the Lord has given Sisera into your hands. Has not the Lord gone ahead of you? So Barak went down to Mount Tabor, followed by 10,000 men. At Barak's advance, the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and army by the sword, and Sisera abandoned his chariot and fled on foot. But Barak pursued the chariots and army as far as Harasheth, Hagioim. All the troops of Sisera fell by the sword. Not a man was left." Caesarea, however, fled on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite, because there were friendly relations between Jabin, king of Hazor, and the clan of Heber the Kenite. Jael went out to meet Caesarea and said to him, Come, my lord, come right in, don't be afraid. So he entered her tent, and she put a covering over him. I'm thirsty, he said. Please give me some water. She opened a skin of milk, gave him a drink, and covered him up. Stand in the doorway of the tent, he told her. If someone comes by and asks you, is anyone here, say no. But Jael, Heber's wife, picked up a tent peg and a hammer and went quietly to him while he lay fast asleep, exhausted. She drove the peg through his temple into the ground, and he died. Barak came by in pursuit of Sisera, and Jael went in to meet him. Come, she said, I will show you the man you're looking for. 
So he went in with her, and there lay Caesarea with a tent peg through his temple, dead. On that day, God subdued Jabin, the Canaanite king, before the Israelites, and the hand of the Israelites grew stronger and stronger against Jabin, the Canaanite king, until they destroyed him. (laughs) The killing fields of heaven. Now, if you drop back to Hebrews a moment, Hebrews 11. just want to read verse 33. Well, I'll read 32 as well to be leading. And what more shall I say? I do not have time to tell you about Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and the prophets. That's an interesting lineup. David's not been given any big profile in this whole account of faith. And yet he's put in another little group with his other men. Interesting lineup. We said, well, David was a great man. Why is he not saying much about David? Well, let's read on. Give the key to what we're looking at these people for. Verse 33. Who, through faith, conquered kingdoms, administered justice, and gained what was promised. In a strange sort of sense, that's the place where the church should be today. Conquering kingdoms, administering justice, and gaining what is promised. And gaining what is promised. And so as we look at these killing fields of heaven, we need to say what it's all about. You can't be a pacifist as a Christian. You can't be a pacifist. You have to be an active Christian. And you have to be in defense of righteousness and goodness. And also standing against the enemy of our souls, who is Satan. Now this story, now I know it's difficult for some of us, I I can't, history is, I, I just can't get hold of history very easily, I'm sorry. My history teacher at school used to say, use the top line, because I would never write on the top line of my exercise book. Use the top line. Now, I know there's no significance in that, but I hated history, and so I just, I, I never used the top line. And I kept in my history book all the way through, use top line in red, use top line, use top line, because I hated history and I can't. And I, so I find it difficult to get into history. I understand, I do understand where many people are. History's difficult. You know, there's lots of odd names in here, lots of odd things going on, lots of things we can't immediately understand because we're not really familiar with the Old Testament Bible. And so we have to sort of jump in it at places and try and understand what it's all about. And we can't understand this story unless we understand the first promise that was ever made by God, recorded in Scripture in Genesis 3, verse 15. And that is it, that when God judged Satan in the sense of his effect on Adam and Eve, what he'd done to bring them into a rebellious state as he was, that God said to him, 
on your belly shall you crawl and eat dust all your life. And it said, he said, I will put enmity, I will put war, I will put war between you and the seed of the woman. And it was a sense referring to Jesus coming as a result of her virgin birth that we remember at Christmas time. The seed of the woman, referring to the virgin birth, the coming of Jesus. Jesus came through the Jewish nation. That's the way he came into this world, ultimately. From heaven he came, in an earthly sense, through, as a Jew, he was born into this world. But not of an earthly father. He was born of the Spirit, of, he was conceived of the Spirit of God, and Mary gave birth to a child miraculously, just like Abraham and Sarah gave birth to a child miraculously, but not in the same way, because they were past, Sarah was past the age of childbearing, she gave birth. And that was a miraculous birth. But the miraculous birth of Jesus is so much different because no, man was, no earthly man was involved. He was born of a virgin. And so what that promise in Genesis 3, verse 15 say is there's going to be war between good and evil, between the coming of a man who's going to sort it out. There's going to be war. I will put enmity between you and the man that's going to come. So in a sense, we're talking about war. Whatever happens in heaven happens on earth. Just like sometimes we say the weather that they have in America eventually comes to England. And very often the, the ways of the Americans, sorry for it, come to England. You know, some things that happen there eventually end up over here. But that all aside, we read in the Bible there was war in heaven. That is a statement we read about. There was war in heaven. Satan and his cohorts were cast out of heaven. God dealt with rebellion in heaven. And in a sense, that's reflected on earth. So understanding the killing fields of heaven is like understanding what God's up to and what God's allowing. And so as we see this messy state here amongst these people, as we see this messy state, these things which are going on, we have to say, Lord, I don't understand it. But in a sense, we need to understand what's going on. History's littered with the slaughter of people. The Bible is no exception. And at the heart of the kingdom of heaven, there is war. This war is God-driven action to the evil spent out on earth and in heaven. In Exodus 15, verse 3, it says, God is a man of war. Or he's a warrior. Why? because he's about justice and he is about love. Let me just read to you a little bit from Andrew Wilson's incomparable book. And uh, it is called, and if you've never read this book, I encourage you to do so. It's called The Wrath of God, The Wrath of Yahweh. Now in Nahum, there is a verse which goes like this. Yahweh is a jealous and avenging God. Yahweh is avenging and wrathful. Yahweh is the true name that the Jews use for God. All right? It just means it means God in his supreme authority. Yahweh is avenging and wrathful. 
Yahweh takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. Yahweh is slow to anger and great in power, and Yahweh will by no means clear the guilty. His way is in whirlwind and storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. I'm just going to read one or two just slots from this. If we could choose which attribute of God we could remove, just like that, I think most of us would choose his wrath. No one likes it. The idea of God being avenging and wrathful and keeping wrath for his enemies strikes us as medieval, nasty and cruel. And it is often a source of embarrassment in conversation with unbelievers. How very unmodern, how unpleasant to have a God who not only gets angry sometimes, but actually lists being wrathful as one of his characteristics. So, dismayed by the theology of Nahum, we hurriedly flick forward to a letter like Romans, which talks about grace and mercy and God's goodness. I think there are three main causes of this misunderstanding. We're talking about understanding the killing fields of heaven. News items over the years where wars have happened have spoke about the killing fields of Vietnam and the killing fields. I mean, what we read about this morning in the story of Barrett is talking about the killing fields of heaven. The relationship, this is the first point, the relationship between the Old and New Covenants, that's the covenant of God in the Old Testament and the covenant of God through Jesus in the New Testament, the fact that the Old, uh, the old Covenants talks much more severely about many sins than the Old. This betrays a total failure to grasp why Jesus died. Jesus' death on a cross did not say, it's all okay because God is not angry with sin anymore. It said God is incredibly angry with sin, so angry that this is the only way to save you. Jesus did not tell people the building was not on fire, but he reminded them that it was on fire and then proclaimed that he was the only emergency exit. That's why God's love, God's wrath, and Jesus' death are grouped together in the New Testament. The second misunderstanding is that God's wrath is somehow like ours. Petty outbursts driven by wounded pride or self-indulgence, divine toddler tantrums that result in pain and regret on all sides. If so, then the passage in Nahum we read about we started with should put an end to it. Just after announcing God's vengeful wrath three times over, the prophet reminds his listeners of something God revealed to Moses on Mount Sinai. Yahweh is slow to anger. God does not have mood swings flying off the handle at the end of the bad day. His wrath is always measured, always appropriate, always righteous, and this makes all the difference. The third source of confusion is probably the biggest one, the idea that wrath and love are opposites. It is quite amazing how many people say things like, a loving God wouldn't do that. Or I believe God is love, not wrath. As if love and wrath were contradictory, but in response to genuine evil. The opposite of wrath is not love, but indifference. 
In John Grisham's novel, A Time to Kill, an Afro-Caribbean father discovers his little girl has been raped by two white men. And in his wrath, he shoots them. The story is powerful because we as readers, although we know that vigilante justice is wrong, somehow feel that his wrath was the appropriate response to the crime. If we go around the Holocaust Museum and do not feel outraged that it happened, we're not loving, but apathetic. Similarly, a man who was not angry that his wife had been having an affair would not thereby demonstrate how much he loved her, but how little. So it is with God. We need to respond to these misunderstandings with truth. The wrath of Yahweh is real and righteous and scary. Flying off the handle is completely beneath the most high God, but is so indifferent to the horror of sin. And we need to adjust our thinking to cope with this. The fact is, whether we like the idea of God's wrath or not, we will all one day witness it for ourselves. As John saw, then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone slave and free hid themselves in the caves among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand? Understanding the killing fields of heaven may not be easy, but scripture is not embarrassed by it. And that's why we read it this morning. But let us look at what was happening here. Here were God's people, here were his children, his chosen people, and what were they suffering? What was happening? Right, if you look there in verse 3, Judges 4 verse 3, Caesarea, who lived in Harasheth Haggim, because he had 900 iron chariots and had cruelly oppressed the Israelites for 20 years, they cried to the Lord for help. They cried to the Lord for help. Oppressed for 20 years. This army, this strategic army, this powerful army, this fearful army, an army to be afraid of. And the whole point about it, here were God's people and they were being oppressed. Oppression very often happens over long periods of time and it's things that are difficult to deal with. You can't deal with them in your own strength. It's an oppression. It comes at you regularly. And if I move now over to the Christian life, sometimes we go through periods of oppression. The church itself has gone through a history of oppressed being oppressed. And we've had men raised up who've, who've stood up for that and they fought against the truth and we thank God for them. Just like we read about in here, the world is not worthy of them because they've been men who stood up and they've gone to war against the enemy. They've gone to war against mistruth, badly placed, badly spoken truth and stood up for Bible truth. And we praise God for people like that. But here were the people, they were being oppressed. 
we just can't do anything about this. And I'm sure that there are some here this morning who have either gone through periods in their life or even in the situation now who are finding some things have been going on for years and years and years and now it's time to be dealt with. Now it's time to be dealt with because the whole point about it is that God gives victory. We talk about the killing fields of heaven but when we look to Jesus, we look to one who overcame the enemy of our souls, the one who came against Satan himself. Now, we're looking at oppression now, things that go on for periods of time. We read about a lady in the Bible who had an illness for 38 years. It was an oppression, you know, when things go on over a period of time and you just have nothing, you seem to have nothing in your power to deal with. And so, ultimately, at the end, your help is going to come from God. Like we read in this thing, the people cried out for help and God heard them. When we cry out for God for help, he helps us. He comes to our aid. That is the confirmation of scripture. Just like we read about the killing fields, read about a God of love and a God of wrath. He's still a God of love. He's still a God of wrath. The God of love will come to you if you ask him. He has come to us in the sense through Jesus. He come to us through Jesus. And there, our help comes from God. God is a God of help. This is oppression. It's spiritual, and it needs to be dealt with spiritually. You know, it's about our emotions. It's about our heart. It's about our feelings. And it's about our lives. We say, Lord, I can't go on anymore. This oppression is too hard for me. I just need, I just need it to be dealt with. Help is only a cry away. Help is found in Jesus. That comfort we need, that struggle in our spirit, you know. The thing we say, I wish it would go away. Someone did something to you many years ago and it's still here. And you can't get it out of here. And it still affects you every day. Another form of oppression is guilt. One thing that Jesus does for us because of his death on the cross is actually frees us from guilt. And still it's something we maybe have done years ago that we can't forgive ourselves for. That's oppression. Because it's over a period of time and it keeps coming back. It keeps coming back to haunt us, to haunt us in our spirit. And we can't move forward with God spiritually unless that oppression is dealt with. Another form is, I wished I had done that many years. I wished I'd gone to Mrs. So-and-so and said, I'm sorry. I wished I'd gone to my daughter and said, I'm sorry. I wished I'd gone to my father and to my mother and said, I'm sorry. That is a form of guilt. That's oppression. And it comes back and it comes back and it comes back and it comes back. God wants to deal with it and move it out of the way because that's the power of the cross. We sing about the power of the cross, but when Jesus said it's finished on the cross, he destroyed the works of the devil and he destroyed the devil himself. That's oppression. It comes back and back and back. Another thing the Bible talks about in the New Testament are strongholds. 
We talk about a place here called Harasheth. And it's a place that Joshua had gone to and fought against, and they sort of scattered the people. Harasheth became a non-entity. But slowly and slowly and slowly, it had been built up as a community again. And so it got the name of Harasheth of the Gentiles. It was meant to belong to the Jews, <laughs> and yet it's called Harasheth of the Gentiles. In other words, that's a stronghold, and it needed to be pulled down. Things which come up again in our lives. And uh, we could, there are certain issues in our lives you thought they'd been dealt with, and then they crop up again. And sometimes we can call that a stronghold. Sometimes a church can be wanting so desperately to be on mission, and there seems to be a door that needs to be opened, and you just, you just can't get through that door. And sometimes that could be termed a stronghold. Something which the enemy seems to have control over. And so Harasheth of the Gentiles became known as a stronghold. But when we read in 2 Corinthians that the power we have through the Spirit of God and the work of Jesus Christ, strongholds can be pulled down. They can be demolished. They can have no more influence, no, no sign of arising again. And sometimes the oppression is tied up with being like spiritual strongholds, things that we just can't overcome, you know? Very often I've seen situations happen in church when uh, it goes a bit like this. Two people aren't getting on together. And um, the one or the other said, you know, um, I'd really like this situation to be sorted out. And um, one goes to the other and says, I just want to sort this thing out. And uh, you thought they'd come together and talk about it, but you still feel, you still feel the issue's not dealt with. You know, you may have talked about it, but you, you feel by a person's actions, you know, that they avoid you on a Sunday morning, or you feel that person's avoiding you, or you feel that person's not coming up to you, and yet you've spoken to them. And the issue's not really dealt with. It's oppressive and it's sort of a stronghold. You know, it needs to be broken down. That real sense of forgiveness and that, that true sense of understanding needs to be brought back together. Strongholds. Harasheth of the Gentiles became known as a stronghold. And the third thing we read about in the story is a direct attack on the enemy himself. Jesus, when he came, he faced the enemy truly as he was in his life, but most importantly, in his death. Because we read about, in Hebrews, that Jesus has destroyed him that had the power of death. He destroyed him that had the power of death. That's the power of the cross. In this messy story, if we like to call it that, Caesarea is lured into the tent of jail and a tent peg is driven through his head. 
messy sort of story, sort of thing you'd look like to see on the television today. This, this can't be God. This can't be the ways of God, understanding the killing fields of heaven. But it was actually dealing with the enemy himself. And Jesus has de dealt with the enemy himself. He's dealt with Satan. Now, the wonderful thing about it is that when we become believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, he gives us now the power to deal with the enemy ourselves, the enemy of our souls. Paul talks about the things which war against the soul. He's talking about, in this chapter, Hebrews, about the sin which so easily besets us. And God gives to us the power to do that. If we read Ephesians, the end of Ephesians, there's the accounts of the things that we can take as Christians to stand against the enemy of our souls. God wants us to war against the things which are destructive in our lives. When Satan came to Eve in the garden, he came to her and they talked about the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And he made the object of the tree, he made that objective and not subjective. And it's a bit like the things that, God, that Satan tempts us with. Everything that's presented to us by Satan is an act of tyranny against us because it comes from the tyrant himself. So it means that... Um, when we're talking about things which look good, things like um, unlawful sex and things and pornography and things which actually can destroy us and harm us, it's presented to us as pleasure. It's presented us as an objective to have that and to do it. When in a sense, sex in itself is right under the authority and the blessing of God. When it's subjective to his glory, and his honour, and things which are right. You know, like, for example, God said to Adam and Eve, he said, you're free to eat of all the trees in the garden. There's your freedom, I've given it to you. The free to choose, the free to take, freedom to enjoy. But Satan comes and he makes that objective. No, that's actually taking away your freedom because there's one you're not supposed to touch. And that's how it comes to us. The sin which so easily besets us, the writer of the Hebrews talks about, there's all these people of faith. All these people, what more proof do you need? When it comes to us in our lives, we are faced with all sorts of temptations. We're faced with disbelief that a God of love could also be a God of war and a God of wrath. But in the end, it's about good and evil. It's about righteousness. It's about us pursuing righteousness and being committed to God. That's what real faith is about. Through Jesus, committing ourselves wholly and completely to his service, to his way, and to his will.
We read in the story in, in Judges 4 that the result, the result of um, Barak's destruction on, his, on those people was not a man was left. Not a man was left. The destruction was complete. And Caesarea was put out of the way. We praise God this morning that what Jesus has done for us can give us a completeness in our lives now, but also for the future. So when it talks about these guys conquering kingdoms and administering justice and receiving promises, this was all happening. God promised them the land that they should have it. They were receiving the promises. God has given us promises that we need to receive, promises of inheritance, not money inheritance, but spiritual inheritance, joy and peace and love and gladness and hope, receiving the promises. And this morning we pray, we just seek God, you know. We need to say to our end, to the enemy, no more, no further. I'm a child of God. I'm able to stand in the presence of God because of what Jesus has done for me. Free and complete. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we thank you again. Thank you for how you teach us, Father, how you show us. We thank you for Jesus. Thank you for our Saviour. Thank you there's no one like him. Thank you, Father, that when Jesus came, he came as a warrior. He came to destroy the works of the evil one. And we thank you that he's done that completely and empowered us to be like him, to destroy the works of the evil one. And so we thank you and we praise you for all that you've given to us, all your grace that we've been singing about this morning, all your love and your mercy. And we ask now that you help us to go out from here, committed again to you, Lord Jesus for all that you've done for us. We just ask this in your wonderful name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.